So good morning, folks. Welcome to Storylines Gathering. I apologize for my voice. I um, sound worse than I feel. And you might think you look even worse than that. I know. Okay. But um, we made it, right? Like, this is amazing. I, I couldn't, if you would have told me at the beginning of the year that we were going to only miss one Sunday, I never would have guessed it in May. So it's pretty cool. So um, I can't believe the six months is over. Time flies. We've been meeting here for almost six months. It's unbelievable. Time flies. And so has our survey through the book of Luke following um, the, the life of Jesus. And um, we are already in chapter 19 of Luke, which brings us actually to the last week of Jesus's life. And here's a little Bible uh, tidbit trivia for you, okay? The first 19 chapters of Luke cover the first 33 years of his life. And the next five chapters cover the last week. If that gives you some idea of where Luke puts the importance, puts the heart of the story. And so right at the end of, uh, we're going to move to the end of chapter 19, which is truly, it's, it's a best place to say, this is the beginning of the end of the story, okay? It's what we now call Palm Sunday. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And it's, it's literally, like I said, it's the beginning of the end. Jesus is entering after three years of kind of um, roaming around ancient Israel, preaching and teaching and healing. He's entering the holy city of Jerusalem. And there are huge crowds come to gather him, gather around him and welcome him into the city. It's like the, you know, the blossom parade. People are going crazy. There's all these crowds. And um, the culminating event of this is Jesus walking up to the holiest place on earth, at least according to the ancient Jews, which is their temple, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, it's, so it's this crescendo moment, all right? Everybody's like waiting to see what's going to happen when the Messiah, when the Savior, when the King of all kings gets to the holiest place on earth. He walks up to the temple. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? And he throws yet another massive curveball to everyone. Nobody's expecting this, okay? Because this is what the Bible says. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now that's really all Luke says about it. But if you look in the other three biographies of Jesus, you can tell real quickly, Luke is telling the PG version of this story, okay? Because it gets wild, it gets crazy. All of a sudden we go from this Jesus, you know, who sometimes some people uh, accuse of looking like, uh, like he's in some kind of beauty contest and, you know, holding his hands gently like he's about to throw a curveball or something, you know? To all of a sudden this guy is super, super upset in one of the stories, it says that he actually made a whip. He's turning over tables. He's driving and pushing people out of the temple courts. Jesus is incensed at this point. He's as mad as we've ever seen him. And he is um, really particularly mad at people, the money changers and the folks in the temple courts who are selling animals. And so, as always, there's so much going on here. And as always, we're never... We are not going to get to the bottom of anything, okay? We're just scratching the surface. But there are a few things that I'd love to highlight this morning and at this beginning of the end moment for Jesus. And the first question is super simple, straightforward. Like, what is the temple? 
because I think we're tempted to think of the temple like a like a Christian cathedral. It's just a bigger version of church, right? Like so, if you think of Notre Dame and and um, not in South Bend, the cathedral, the one in France, like what happens there every Sunday is the same thing happening at other Catholic churches around the world, no matter how small, right? Is that what the Jewish temple is? Is it just a, a really big Jewish synagogue? Uh, and that's not what's happening, in fact, okay? Um, the temple in Jerusalem wasn't just a big Jewish synagogue. No matter where they were in the world, Jews had to go back to this temple, the one in Jerusalem. Many of them went more than one time a year. And um, this is one of the reasons that Jerusalem to this day is such a conflicted area of the world because um, for one, for, Jude, for uh, the ancient Jews and even Jews today, they believe that there's something that takes place in Jerusalem at the temple that takes place there that couldn't take place any other place in the world actually two things okay and the first is this the temple was the place where you could meet God face to face that was the place where you could go it was a place of personal encounter with God himself in fact in the Psalms which are these ancient songs that that the Jewish people would sing many of them on the way to Jerusalem one of the Psalms goes like this I want to come and see you face to face in your sanctuary okay so now Judaism, it does have a sense that God is everywhere, you know? Like many of us have that sense that God, well, where is God? God is everywhere. Uh, but the Jewish um, religion doesn't believe that God is everywhere the way he was present in the temple. I, I, you can think of it, this, I was watching a news story this week, and um, I was thinking, it's kind of like Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Like, this is how the Jews thought about it. So, like, think about it. Bear with me, okay? The handiwork of Jeff Bezos, we see everywhere, right? Like, the internet, Amazon is everywhere. Uh, on the freeways, his trucks are everywhere. In my driveway, they're just coming in and out every day, right? Pretty much everywhere. Jeff Bezos is now even in outer space, right? I heard somebody the other day call him a cash tronaut. And so um, he's everywhere. His handiwork is everywhere. But to know him personally, to know Jeff Bezos personally, you have to meet him face to face. That means you have to be in the same place where he is at, okay? And so it is with the God of ancient Judaism. That was the first function of the temple. Their claim was that God, his, his royal presence, what they called in the Old Testament, his Shekinah glory, dwelt on earth in this one place. Okay, behind this veil, this curtain, and behind this is the Holy of Holies, and that's where God is in a very special and a unique way. So that's one very unique thing about this temple in Jerusalem, okay? The second thing that's very unique about it is that it was not just the place of personal encounter with God, it was the place of sacrifice. We've hit on this theme quite a bit in the last few weeks. You know, this is why there were people in the temple courts, the outer courts of the temple, who were selling animals. And these Jews were coming from all over the world, and so they had different kinds of currency. You had to exchange your currency for the local currency. And so that's what's going on there. You have to picture this big marketplace when Jesus walks into the temple. This is what he finds because people are buying these animals to atone 
for their sins, okay? These Jewish pilgrims were descending on Jerusalem and that's what they're doing. So you see the temple is kind of the embodiment um, of this one really key teaching of the ancient Jewish religion and it's this. You can't just approach God any old way you want. Like you, you just can't just bebop up to God like, what up, bruh? You cannot do that with God. That was just, you can't do that, okay? There's no sauntering up to God. To meet God, you had to be cleansed. And to do that, you had to make a sacrifice. Now for this to begin to resonate with us at all, there's a couple things that we need to kind of keep in mind. And the first thing that we have to remember is that Judaism is neither a Western nor an Eastern religion. Okay? Western and Eastern religions are very different, but the Jews actually lived to this day. Israel is in this small sliver of land that literally brings together the Western and the Eastern world. And the Jewish religion was a hybrid of Eastern and Western religions. Okay? So Eastern religions, for example, and there's a lot of really fancy $10 theological words here, but I'm going to boil it down to just two concepts for us this morning. Okay? Eastern religions believe that God is perfect, but impersonal. Perfect, but impersonal. Um, think of like the force in Star Wars, okay? It's very clear when you're watching these movies, and there's way too many of them if you ask me. But there, if you're, as you're watching these movies, the, that the force is real, the force is powerful, but you can't really connect with it in a personal way. You can have some kind of mystical union with the force um, or with, the, with an, the Eastern gods or God, but not a relationship, a personal relationship in the way that you and I talk about it, in the way that we think about that concept, okay? On the other hand, if you think of ancient Western religions, now you have to go back to like um, world literature class in, in uh, high school. So think of like the ancient Greek and the ancient Roman and the ancient pagan gods of Europe, okay? The, their gods, the Western gods, are opposite. They're very imperfect, right? They have names. There's, it's like a big soap opera, right? All these gods, they have names. They have personalities. They're deeply flawed, all right? But they're personal. You can know these gods. You can have a relationship with these gods, all right? So... The God of the Bible is really this hybrid of East and West in a really unique, revolutionary way that no one had ever laid out before in all of world history. Because the God of the Jews was both perfect and personal. Perfect and personal. Now this is new. We often hear about the Jews and we think, oh, they, you know, they get credit for inventing monotheism. And you can kind of make a case for that. I think there's some evidence that there were other ancient peoples that had a version of monotheism. But what really made the, Jew, the Jews stand out as this you know, peculiar little tribe with this bizarre new religion is that they had a God that was perfect and personal. That's brand new. That is brand new. No one had ever thought of that before. No one had ever described uh, the creator or that way. So on the one hand, you could know the God, this God of the Bible. That was, that was part of what the temple was for. And on the other hand, because this God isn't just personal, that you can know him, he's also perfect. He's also holy. 
you couldn't just barge in. That was the other half of the role of the temple. Know God personally, place of sacrifice, okay? That's the two functions the temple served because to meet God, you had to deal with the issue of what the Bible calls sin. Now, there are echoes here of what we've talked about in the last few weeks, one of which is like, why did Jesus have to die? And I love all the questions and comments I've been getting from folks. Please keep those coming. Really, really good. You guys are super smart and really good looking. So thank you for that. But, um, and I'm not just saying that to flatter you. Okay, yes I am. All right. But uh, God, uh, why did Jesus have to die? And I know that a lot of the responses I've gotten, it seems like, oh, this makes God seem so, here's two words I got last week. I love this. It makes God seem so fragile and so vengeful. And I thought, well, you know what? That's a pretty good uh, objection. That's a pretty good point. So I'm going to stick with those two words that somebody here offered. So what's going on with this? Is God fragile and vengeful that this God of Judaism makes us deal with sin before we enter into his presence? So uh, think about this. And I'm just, I'm just trying to see if we can re we'll resonate with this. Imagine you have a daughter and you love her, and, but she's a lot of work. Okay, like you know, a lot of time, effort, energy, sacrifice goes into raising this daughter. And then when, when she gets ready to go off to college, you give her like your life savings, like everything you've earned. All right. Now, I know that uh, so far every parent is tracking. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah, Mike, we get it so far. We're right with you. But then she goes off to college, supposedly, and just disappears. She absolutely disappears. She doesn't go to college, takes all the money, goes to the big city, and blows it. All right? Self-indulgent, crazy lifestyle, loses it all. Now a year goes by. You haven't heard from her. She's just disappeared with everything. And she just comes back one day, bursts through the, through the door, walks into the kitchen, opens the fridge. Hey, what's for dinner? Okay? And now, as if your relationship should be just fine, as if there should be no problem at all. Now, if you put yourself in that spot, wouldn't you say something like, whoa, hold on for a second. You can't just waltz back in here and pretend nothing's wrong. You know, like, what, what about what you've done? We've got to talk about that. We've got to get this straight. We've got to figure this out. We've got to deal with this. And if your daughter were to say, jeez, gosh, you seem so fragile and so vengeful. That would not fly with you, okay? Now you're vengeful, right? They say something like that, right? See, that isn't, she is not fairly describing the entire context of what's happened in your relationship, right? You might object, you might say something like, look, I'm not vengeful, I'm not fragile, I love you. I've cared for you your entire life. I've given you all that I have. And because of that, we have to do something about you squandering the gifts that I've given you. You've squandered them on your own comfort, your own control, your own pleasure. You've often done that at the expense of your siblings. We have to address that. I can't just ignore that reality. You have not only messed up your life, you've messed up the lives of people around you by doing that. We can't, I can't just ignore that. And it's not because I don't love you, it's because I do love you. Now look, unless we are some kind of meaningless accident, we have to acknowledge that 
we all, we have a creator. We have a creator. And if we have a creator, then everything we have, our life, our breath, and everything else are all due to him. Everything we have is a gift. Everything. And the question is, what have we done with that gift? Now, it's easy enough to see this in other people. At least it is for me. Like when they're squandering their good gifts, like when they're ungrateful for all of their opportunities, we're really good at seeing that in other people or in the other tribe, right? But we can really struggle with seeing that in ourselves. Psychologists have a name for this. They call it the actor-observer bias. The actor-observer bias, and it goes like this. It's the tendency to attribute our own shortcomings, our own failings, our own flaws and bad actions to external causes. Like, yes, I messed up, I made a mistake, but fill in the blank made me do it, okay? Um, so so we, what do we want? We want understanding. We have a justification. We want compassion, mercy and, and, and for ourselves and, and our side. But when it comes to others and, and the other side, the other tribe, we attribute their behavior to internal causes. They're deeply flawed. For us, it's something out there. But for them, oh, it's, there's, some, there's some horrible vice. They're super selfish. That's what's going on in them, right? It's sin. And we demand justice, right? But the, type, the Bible teaches that we're all in that boat. <laughs> all of us are in the second boat, right? We've taken this gift of life. Uh, the gifts of God that he gave us, and then we act as if they're ours. Like we own them, like we can do whatever we feel like doing with them. We called this last week, using Eric Fromm's book, we called it negative freedom. We called it negative freedom. Like we live as if we're free from the obligation or responsibility to God and to one another. But the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, does not see it like that. And I would argue that our souls know it. And that's the reason that negative freedom, just this freedom from, leaves us empty. Come out to the ends where it is quiet Just telling lies of what they heard 
once there was a time to join the army And once there was a time to hear the news And once there was a time for easy silence But now the jury waits for you say so often not to get something from us but to give something to us himself and to give something through us his love when we refuse this half of our freedom like what freedom's for the positive side of freedom there is a jury our conscience letting us know that we've squandered the gift okay it's as if we've ruptured the fabric of creation. We, we've run off with the college money, so to speak, and to do whatever we please. And that's not just harming ourselves. And it's not just actively harming others. There's also a harm in the good that we withhold, that we were gifted to do these good works, these good things for others. And when we're off doing things, even if it's only harming ourselves, we're still withholding the good of that former mission that we were giving, okay? So that can't, we can't just bebop back into God's presence like none of that's ever happened. That has to be dealt with. The magnitude, the gravity of it all really does need to be faced. It's as if, it's like, we said this last week, if, if God didn't say, hey, we've gotta, we've gotta do something about this, it would be like we said last week, it would be like God saying, you know what, you guys just aren't that important to me. It doesn't really matter to me that you've taken my good gifts and squandered them on yourself. It's not that big a deal that I, I resourced you, I gave you these gifts to give away, and you chose not to do it. All right? If God doesn't do something about that, it's like him saying, you really don't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me how you live or how you love, because... I don't love you. But that isn't the case. We know that God loves us desperately, which is why this great squandering has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. You know, I, you know when I first noticed this in the real world, it really clicked for me, um, was when I began to be a teacher. 
before I had my own children. And over the years, you see, if you're a teacher, you get the great privilege of seeing kids do what kids do, which is some really stupid things, right? The list is long, all right? But one of the most common things that happens, every teacher has this happen every year, is someone will cheat on a test, all right? And they think they're really slick about it. One of my favorites was the girl who wrote her, the answers to a math quiz or on, on the bottom of her shoes. She did not get caught in school. She got caught in, um, that weekend at her confirmation when she went up to kneel at the altar and her <laughs> shoes had all these formulas written on the bottom. <laughs> it's hysterical. I love that. Okay, so anyway, here's what always happens when these kids get caught cheating, all right? And every teacher will tell you this story. At least for me, I didn't take it personally. Okay, they're not really they're not hurting me they're only hurting themselves and so I would confront them on it in a way that I hope was constructive and we could move forward but then we always had to get their parents involved and that's when it hit the fan right because the parents are always really super upset with their kid I'm calm and the parents are incensed now why how is it that I'm calm is it is it because I love their kid more than they do no, it's just the opposite, right? They're angry about the cheating because they love their child. The level of indignation corresponds to the level of love, all right? And that is what we see going on here in the temple. We have, in essence, cheated. We have taken what isn't ours and we've used it in a self-centered way. And that all at once harms us. It harms other people. And the Jews, according to the Old Testament of the Bible, were the chosen people in, in at least this sense, okay? They were given a place, the temple, where they could, one, come back to God and meet with him in person, have a relationship with God, but also, two, this sacrificial system that acknowledges all of this, that God is the giver of good gifts, that we have done like a dine and dash with those gifts instead of sharing them with one another, and that that offense is deadly. It's killing us. It's grinding us down. And to give back to God, to restore the, the, this relationship with God, we have to demonstrate that we recognize all of this and are determined to do better. That's what sacrificing animals at great cost to the ancient people, animals would have been very expensive, at the cost of life, that's what the sacrificial system is all about. It is living with this visceral, vicarious embodiment of who we are, who God is, what God is offering us, what we've run off with, and what it costs us and others for us to do so. It's a big deal. That's what this, the temple is trying to establish. That's what the temple is for. So when Jesus walks into the temple at this crescendo moment, at the beginning, the very beginning of the end of his life, okay, he walks into basically a flea market with people haggling over the price of doves and, and goats and lambs and things like that. And the money changers arguing with people about how much that should this currency be worth. And it's just this big flea market and he loses it. He just kind of loses it. This is Jesus cleansing the temple. 
And, and, and it's like he's saying he wants it to be a place where we actually really meet God face to face in awe and with enjoyment and with an empowering peace about it. This isn't to be a place of formalities, of ritual. It's not about this place to just go through the motions. Because let's face it, the only kind of worship that you could do in a setting like that, when you walk in and it's just chaos, is to just go buy the animal you're gonna sacrifice, get in, get out. Go through the motions. I believe the right things, I did the right things, boom, I'm out. But Jesus wants more than that. He wants more than just us doing the right things and believing the right things. He really longs for us to connect with God in a way that's meaningful, that's transformative for our sake. And so he cleanses the temple. It's this great reminder and opportunity. Like, I think I was reading this over and over this week, and I'm like, okay, am I really doing that? Am I finding regular times and places and spaces in my life? Maybe one of those for you is here on a, at a gathering. Maybe for my, my wife, it's walking, hiking. But some of the places for me where I really connect with God is reading, mowing the lawn, exercising, okay? To, to really connect with God, are we, are we finding those times and places? Or is our life like this temple? Is it loud? Is it just, just absolutely full? Maybe even of religious activity, but not real connection with the source, with our goal. It's a question worth thinking about. I think it's one that this scene kind of brings up. So when Jesus cleanses the temple, he's saying for our own good, he's demanding that our hearts be open and alert and expectant and dependent so that we can connect with God in a way uh, that his wisdom, his ways, his love can truly deeply impact us, like really change us at the core of who we are in our temple, so to speak. Connecting with God here in that way, enjoying, really resting in and taking strength from our acceptance. Are we finding ways to do that in our lives that we find that empower us and prepare us for the ups and downs of real life so that we can take these ups and downs and see them with some sense of perspective, put them in their proper place. Are we connecting with God on a regular basis in a way that transforms us and empowers us so that we don't overestimate the trivial but loud things in life, but we don't underestimate the dangerous but subtle parts of life in ourselves. So here's the deal. I think for to follow Jesus, at least part of it looks like having this personal Palm Sunday experience. Like where he shows up and we greet him with joy. Like finally, he's here. God has arrived and we jump up and down. We're happy about God in our life. We have all this enthusiasm and we have all this excitement. And the problem is that Jesus doesn't just stop at the parade. He's not just doing a parade around the perimeter of our life. All of a sudden he turns and makes a beeline for our temple. 
for the most holy place. And then when he gets there, he starts rearranging everything. He starts flipping over some tables. This is how we know God is active in our life. Is he rearranging your furniture? Is he? Are you thinking twice about things that you never, that you never used to? Are you reconsidering this, that, and the other about your life? Can you admit when you've been wrong? Are you, I know my wife struggles with that one, by the way. Okay, are you, are you reprioritizing, right? If, all, if those things are happening in your life, maybe Jesus has entered the temple. Maybe that's what's going on. C.S. Lewis has this great analogy where he compares Jesus coming into our lives like a contractor coming in to fix up a, a house that's broken down. And he says, you know, when, when the contractor first comes in and he's fixing the leaky roof and he's fixing the dripping faucet, we're like, oh, great, yo, absolutely, yeah, great, good, good job, thank you so much. Why? Because we knew that was what's wrong. This old house had that wrong with it, right? But then he doesn't stop there. This contractor starts tearing out walls. He's raising the roof. He's throwing a wing on, and that's hurts. Now that's messy. That's expensive. We didn't expect that. We didn't ask for that. But this contractor's going nuts in here, all right? It, it, and we start to wonder, what in the world is he up to? And this is what C.S. Lewis says. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but God is building a palace. He intends to come live in it himself. So good. So Jesus is cleansing the temple. It's not just about like quieting our hearts and just focusing our hearts so we can really connect. It's also about connecting with God in a way that transforms us. The size and the shape of our souls, okay, and our hearts. It's about making room for God in such a way that, like we said last week, God's heart becomes our home. But likewise, our heart becomes his. It's a, brand, it's a new way of thinking about how do we connect with God, this personal yet perfect God. One of my favorite writers uh, wrote a book, and he calls it this, The Renovation of the heart. I love that. This is what I'm discovering. If my God never challenges me, never pushes me, never counters my will, if my God never rearranges my furniture, it's time for me to look in the mirror because maybe, more than likely, my God's staring me back in the face when I do so. So if you think about it, <clears throat> There was nothing wrong with the selling of animals and the money changing going on at the temple. That was part of the, this provisional sacrificial system that God set up. It was supposed to be happening, in other words. In other words, the selling of animals for sacrifice and the money changing was a good thing. So why in the world was Jesus so upset about it? And I think it's this because it was on the inside. Because it was on the inside. This is how we know Jesus is doing a number on us. He starts to rearrange things, even the good things that are too far in. 
They're too close to the center of our hearts and our lives, and they're crowding out God. And here's why. It is not a selfish thing on God's part. It's not about placating his ego. That's not what it's about. It's because nothing but God can bear the burden of being God. Nothing but God can bear the burden of being God. And if we allow anything or anyone, even something or someone good, into the center of our heart, our temple will fall. may happen uh, in the next couple of weeks more than once folks <laughs> all the moving around
After this huge scene at the temple, Jesus just, you know, makes a scene. I'm sure his mom would have said, oh, my mom would have said that, you're making a scene. So after this huge scene at the temple, the religious leaders come up to Jesus and they ask him, they go, what are you doing? And in one of the other biographies it says this, that Jesus responded to them by saying, tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And they thought he was crazy. But he wasn't talking about this physical temple, this building that was around them, that housed this provisional sacrificial system that people had to repeat over and over and over again and never got the job done. He was referring to the temple of himself, the sacrificial lamb of God, who, as we discovered last week, came to give his life as a ransom so that this provisional um, could become permanent, so that the temporary temple built by human hands could become an eternal one built by him. Jesus is the temple of God. Jesus is the temple of God. He is where we meet God face to face. And he is the sacrifice for and atones for our sins. We can now have this personal relationship with God where the temple of God comes into our life, into our temple, and lives and moves, and we have our being through, in, and for him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place, for your amazing love for us that stops at nothing that um, you call us out, that you invite us in, that you want to transform our hearts. Help us to see the ways uh, that we crowd you out of our life. God, I pray for this personal Palm Sunday for each and every one of us, that we would greet you with joy and that we would be very uh, patient and open and humble as you rearrange the furniture in our lives. I pray that you would help that to transform us back into ourselves, that we may receive your love and may share it. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.